Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. So as a gear manufacturer, how do you balance the specific needs of world-class athletes with those of average skiers and riders? At our last Blister Summit, we asked exactly this question at a panel session titled Athletes and Product Design, and we had weigh in on this topic, K2 athlete McKenna Peterson, Solomon skier Drew Peterson, Moment Skis athlete and ski builder Tyler Curl, and K2 engineer Jed Yeiser to discuss the product development process and the roles that athletes, designers, and product managers play. We had them discuss the weirdest prototypes they've tried and what evolutionary versus revolutionary changes we ought to expect in the future, which discontinued products they'd like to bring back, and more. This was a really interesting conversation that I think pulls back the curtain on the evolving relationships of athletes to product designers, and there is a lot to be learned in this conversation. Furthermore, if you're into different athletes and product designers coming together from various companies and chopping it up on some of these broader issues in snow sports, well, then you might want to come to our next Blister Summit, and we will include a link in the show notes of this episode to get all the information for our upcoming Blister Summit 2024, including the registration link. And if you'd like to watch this particular conversation and all of the videos of our Blister Summits and the brand lineups from Blister Summit 2023, well, then you can do so over on our Blister YouTube channel, and we will include a link to that in the show notes of this episode as well. And now, let's talk about athletes and the product design process with McKenna Peterson, Drew Peterson, Tyler Curl, and Jed Yeiser. Here we go. We've just wrapped up four days on snow, storm skiing yesterday, today, Full bluebird, fresh snow, wildly good day out there. Um, got to make turns with some of you today, all of you at some point. But um, like this is just like, sometimes we get to be particularly grateful, I think, uh, for days. And this this definitely, definitely goes down as one of them. Um, so amazing. Um, what a way to wrap up the on snow portion of uh, this this summit 2023. Um, and now a few final panel sessions. What we are doing here is talking about athletes, athletes and product designers and how athletes work with product designers. And maybe we uncover a few tensions here, um, but maybe mostly we're just looking to pull back the curtain on this. And then as we always do, I will stop asking questions and open it up to our audience that has very much proven this week to ask very smart questions. So that is our agenda. Um, let's go down the line 
and talk a little bit, introduce yourselves, um, and maybe just talk a little bit about like sort of what, why you are on this panel on uh, this topic of athletes and product designers. Yeah, um, I'm Jed Yeiser. I'm the ski product director for K2 Skis and Line Skis. Um, I've been working designing skis for K2 for 12 years um, and was building skis in my garage back home in Vermont before then. Um, and basically, I'm here because uh, I, I work with athletes a lot, like McKenna. Um, and it's something that I, I love doing. It's a part of my job that I really enjoy. And hopefully I can lend some some clarity as to how at least we as K2 in line work with our athletes to develop product. I'm McKenna Peterson. I have been a K2 athlete for 10 years and have spent a good portion of that working with Jed and K2's product development team. I'm Tyler Curl. I grew up with my mom as a K2 rep, actually. And when I was 13, I got involved with Moment Skis. Um, I've been with the company for 12 years now and work there. And in my free time, I compete on the Freeride World Qualifiers and am an athlete for the company as well. I'm glad that we've just established that you started with child labor. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my name is Drew Peterson. We've already established that I'm still wearing my ski boots. Um, I have a habit when I'm at Crested Butte of accidentally skiing bell to bell because it's so fun. Um, on a less prestigious note, I'm a professional skier for Solomon. Um, I started this ski career and started working in gear design when I was 16. Um, and ever since I've been working at a number of different brands and, um, now I've been at Solomon, this is year six. So I've worked on everything from hard goods to apparel, to helmets and goggles and all the fun stuff. Yeah. Tyler, I want you to say just a little bit more about, cause I think you kind of, um, we don't say soft sold, but undersold in terms of what you're doing. So you said the part, like you are currently a comp skier. You said you work for Moment, but say a bit more about what you are doing at Moment. Yeah, so for all growing up, um, I was on the production side of things, making skis um, around school, in the summer, all that kind of thing. Um, I've now moved up. I'm helping run our athlete team, doing some marketing stuff, and running our storefront day-to-day. -day. And uh, to elaborate more on the ski competition side of things, um, I do a year-long tour, um, pretty rigorous, pretty crazy schedule, but we travel around and the goal is to uh, qualify and do well enough to make it onto the Freeride World Tour. And in doing that, um, I find value kind of relating it to the products and the discussion we're having tonight. And that when I'm in the start gate or up there hiking up for something, um, everyone I'm with, we're all talking for quite a while and it's usually about gear. And it's either something is doing well or it sucks and we hate it. And we're all pretty much in unison on that. Um, so that's my elaboration. Hmm. Jed, talk about, at least at K2 and your time there, how has this worked? Um, engineers working with athletes, has it been pretty similar over a decade or has it evolved or... Depends who's on the team. Talk a bit about that. I mean, I think it's it's really it's very athlete dependent. Um, but at you know, I think the most succinct level or the way to put 
the way that we work with athletes is to direct and evaluate product. And there's a lot in that, but that's, that's a, I think, a good way of packaging what we do. Um, obviously, not all of our consumers are athletes. And so we need to spend a lot of time testing and evaluating skis that are not designed for athletes. Some of our athletes, like McKenna, have really shown a, a, a great ability to put themselves in the shoes of someone not themselves or a different consumer and provide really concise feedback on, on prototypes and on skis. And so those are the athletes that we tend to integrate more fully into our development programs. Um, but all of our athletes are involved with product development from, you know, in, in one respect or another. We'll have meetings with product development and athletes and, and just, they've got their ear to the ground. Um, and we really need to be hearing what's working for them, sort of like what Tyler was saying, you know, what's working, what's not, where do we need to be going as a brand for them as athletes and, and also for skiing? Um, what are they seeing? What do they need? And how can we be doing that? Um, yeah, I think that's, yeah. Um, I mean, and, and certainly if you have athletes where we have pro models like Seth and, and some other athletes we're working with now, the working dynamic is a little bit different where it's really the athlete is driving all of the product decisions and all of the evaluations. And we're really just there to sort of facilitate that. Um, I think like working with Eric Pollard was a great example where he would come up with the idea. He really had had a concept of what he wanted this ski to be. And we were the tool that he used to to sort of have those skis come to fruition. Um, yeah. Hmm. McKenna. You've worked with a number of companies on a number of different products. I would be interested to hear you talk about the range of, I mean, Jed said it, it varies, right? So just in your own experience, um, talk a bit about the range of what, what you've been asked to do when it comes to product. Here's a new thing. So walk us through the sort of options that you've experienced. Yeah, it's a pretty big range, actually. Um, it's, you know, all the way from what do you want? Mm -hmm. What's your dream ski? What are you looking for? Like, let's just write it down and start and see where we can go from there to, you know, we've come down to these three prototypes for a ski that I might not ski every day, but we're going to ship them to you. Will you please put this many days on them and give us feedback? So it's kind of all over the board from, you know, helping create something that I want from my brain and my desires to giving feedback on product that K2 just needs people to ski on and give feedback on in order to create the best product possible. And follow up, how often does it happen where you are told, here's a new product, just go be on it and see if you break it. Like just trying to test the durability part of whether it's a pack or a pair of skis or boot, Does is it ever that simple? It's never that simple, no. I, I think that they do, I think most brands do all of their durability testing in-house. You know, at least to the point of go ski this and see if you can break it. I mean, that's sounds slightly sketchy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so, no, I, I wonder. I don't really want to be in that situation. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to either. Um, okay, for Tyler and Drew, talk a bit about the dynamics of an athlete team 
how it works at moment, what's happening with Solomon. And um, because I think this is kind of the rub. If any of you this week were skiing with McKenna or Tyler or Drew or Hoji, et cetera, the rest of us don't probably ski quite like they do. And then we have this issue where companies are selling products to, you know, mortals. And so we have incredibly high level, highly skilled athletes on the one hand, weighing in on something that's going to then go to those of us who are on a different level. That is the most euphemistic way I could say, you know, right? Like just a different level. Um, so talk a little bit about that because it seems obvious how that would create tension, right? So with Moment and our athlete team and testing, we um, will usually shoot for a specific product in a certain category that we're after and we'll have the athlete team test that. And we acknowledge that the athlete team is kind of on the edge of the spectrum. They're pretty crazy when you see them skiing. They do stuff that you're probably like, all right, that looks pretty stupid. And then they pull it off and you're like, oh, all right, sweet, pretty cool. Pretty cool. Um, and what we also like to do, we have all them, they're the show ponies, they're gonna have the gear, but we um, bring in local friends, um, friends of the company, girlfriends, wives, different partners, all that kind of stuff. And we want to get all different ranges of performance and feedback on that ski. We acknowledge that if we're making a competition ski, like something I might prefer, which is going to be pretty heavy, might have metal and be very directional. Um, that's going to cater very well to me, putting a lot of force on that ski, trying to ski pretty fast. And I acknowledge that when we give that ski to a customer who maybe they have only a park background, no racing background, or they're learning different style of skiing, we know that they're probably not gonna get along with it. So it's really fun and interesting when we make a ski that has a pretty large range or a sweet spot where we can have a top end athlete performing on that ski. And I can put someone on there who is a low level intermediate, maybe kind of picking up in speed and they can both get on the same product and feel the same performance that's going well for them. Yeah, um, from a broad perspective, because I've worked with a number of different companies, there have certainly been a number of different dynamics and that largely depends on what product categories and then what product lines we're designing. So like one of my prior sponsors, like we were tasked with completely redesigning the entire apparel line for ski, which was an awesome opportunity. So we spent an entire weekend like 10, 12 hour days as a full team ideating on what this could become. And what came out of that weekend was amazing. And that one was an example where the entire team worked on the whole thing. And we worked on the men's and women's sides, um, which I think is very cool. And, you know, all the companies I've been at, that's not very common that we get to work men and women together because I think that it's actually very valuable, especially for men who are more commonly in, um, you know, positions of influence to be able to learn from what the female perspective is so that we can keep that, you know, consciously in mind when we're um, designing products for all genders um, and just opening our minds and, you know, 
really centering in on keeping the consumer front of mind. Um, you know, more specifically, like some of how we work on it at Solomon is really, you know, like I said, it's dependent on product category, but um, we'll create these like little focus groups of sorts. Um, so like if we're going to design a ski from like 100 to 108 in width, like that's my domain. And that's the product group. That's the focus group that I'm on. But if we're designing a big fat powder ski that like you really aren't going to have to ski anything but powder on, that's the Canadians on our team. That's Stan Ray, Alexi Gabu. Like, you know, that's like the QST blank. Um, but there's a huge range. And so then like it also works in different ways. Like right now I'm working on prototype ski boot. And that's on like a very like one-on-one -on -one basis. Like I literally just text the product designer in France and he'll text me on WhatsApp. And one of the funny things about working with French people is they call ski boots shoes. So he's like, do you have any updates on the shoes? <laughs> like, well, like- I'm still I, wearing the shoes. <laughs> <laughs> like my cowboy boots clip into a pair of bindings, but I think we're talking about this touring boot. So, you know, that huge range is really dependent on what we're trying to create. And I think what we're trying to do, but you know, one of like the positions that I feel like I've had success in is, you know, really keeping in mind the consumer because we can create products for the best gears in the world all day long, but that might not translate. Like Tyler said, like, I love a stiff metal directional ski, but a lot of people don't. And like, yeah, I get to work on and ski on stiff metal directional skis. If you skied with me this week, I was skiing on our stance line, stance 96 and stance 102, because I really don't believe that you need much wider ski than that for skiing in Colorado. But like, you know, we have to keep that in mind of the consumer and then we have to work on the rest of the product range too. And I think that that's also like how, you know, like Jed, you mentioned with McKenna, um, I think it's, that's a big part of how athletes build relationships with these brands is the people who are in positions, um, you know, where you get to start working on product design and you can have that mindset of the consumer and like a marketing perspective is immensely valuable. Um, and like, for me, I have a bachelor's degree in marketing from the University of Utah. And so in many ways, like, you know, if life had taken a couple different twists and turns, I'd just be on the other side of the table. So in a lot of ways, I think that that's where the success at a lot of these companies comes to is when you're working with a good team that's keeping the end consumer in mind, but also using the experience and expertise of your athlete team, that's when we're designing the best products. To jump in there quickly, I think talking to athletes helps us identify the end consumer and the needs of the end consumer better, right? Like I spend a lot of time sitting behind a computer screen. These guys are out there skiing with people and there's no better resource for a company to understand the target market and the consumer that we're designing product for than to talk to people that are out there doing it every day. Um, but yeah, I agree with everything you just said. Well done, man. Yeah. Um, but you don't need a marketing degree to be a pro skier because <laughs> it would have been a lot cheaper to not get that. <laughs> gotcha. So Jed, we are currently setting things up a little bit. Um, uh, the regular public people who enjoy skiing on over here, mm -hmm. athletes over here. How often 
in your experience or maybe in things you've heard from other companies, how often is it this, is it actually as tidy as that? We've already identified that can create issues. You've got athletes over here and consumers over here, but what if like, how often do all the athletes agree or is it splintered a lot? I'll let you know if it ever happens. Um, I mean, in general, one athlete will really like one thing about a certain prototype and then another athlete thinks that that's horrible. And it, and this just gets, comes down to selecting athletes and working with people that understand what, understand the consumer and understand what we're trying to do. Um, so it, it, is there always a hundred percent consensus on the performance of a prototype among athletes? I can think of maybe one. The 98. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's the discussions that really sort of help us evaluate, like, is this ready? Mm -hmm. And just because we're designing for a consumer that may not be an athlete doesn't mean that athletes won't really like that ski as well. And vice versa, if we have a project where we say, like, this is just an athlete ski. We're just taking athlete feedback. This is a ski that we want our athletes to be stoked on. That doesn't mean that there aren't a large number of consumers that that ski is going to work out very well for as well, right? Like there's not like a line where it's like, you'll only like this ski if you're, you're filming lines in AK with MSP. That just doesn't exist. There are a lot of really strong skiers in the customer pool, and those tend to gravitate more towards the skis that our athletes want. I don't know if that answered your question. I think so. Okay. You all three, have you had sort of division amongst the team oh yeah okay drew oh of course <laughs> is it is it pretty frequent i uh, yes and no um i think that solomon has a really um credible team with a lot of experience so we're all kind of like set in our ways and set in our preferences in a lot of ways um, so yeah, we definitely disagree quite a bit, but you know, like that's the reason that you like divide into these focus groups where people are going to be able to focus on what they're most credible at. So like, you know, like Greg Hill is always going to be better at lightweight touring equipment than I am. And, you know, I think that's, that's the point is like, we're not trying to appease an entire athlete team. Just like you're not trying to appease every single skier with every single ski. And then another point that I think it's important to make is when K2 in particular is trying to bring a ski to market, the designers and the engineers already have an idea in mind of what they want the ski to do. So then when we are out there on the prototypes giving feedback, they give us a list. We want the ski to do X, Y, and Z. We want it to feel like this. Let us know how it's performing in these categories. So we, in a way, we take ourselves out of the equation. You know, I'm skiing on the ski with a list of things in mind of what the ski is supposed to do, and then giving feedback on how well it is doing those things. I'm not skiing the ski to be like, this is mine. Sometimes I'm doing that, but not, not <laughs> yeah. as often. That's a, you know, it, it that's a small percentage. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean that. Yeah. Um. No, and I think like that's the the more athlete focused a ski is, the more we're going to give McKenna a ski and say like go ski it and let us know what you think. Yeah. The more we want McKenna's feedback on a project we're working on that's a little bit outside of the skiing that McKenna does, that's where we'll hand her a product brief that that 
hopefully in detail, mm -hmm. describes our target consumer, what that consumer wants out of the ski, and, and sort of prioritizing five different uh, performance priorities that we think are important for the consumer that, that we're building the ski for. Your turn. Questions? The question is, Jed, what is your favorite part of your job? That's, I don't know that I have an answer. It, it sort of shifts based on the time of year. Um, I'm a nerd. I really like math, right? And being able to like break things down um, and take a problem and break it down in digestible chunks is gratifying in a way that uh, that's pretty addictive. And it, I think that's one of the, the large reasons that I stayed doing what I'm doing. Um, I work with a great team of people, both internally and, and the athlete team. And I think it's a combination of being able to work with people that I genuinely enjoy being around outside of the office who share my passions and then being able to, to bury my head in the sand and um, just break a problem down with math. Thanks, Heads. Okay. So the question is, and I think I am going to keep this one focused on ski. Given that you all are working on the future, which is what you do, do you think that we, or would you say that we are currently in an evolutionary stage with respect to skis or revolutionary stage? You, it's never always revolutionary, right? This is always happening in stages. Um, where do you think we are at this moment in time? Tyler. I've been pretty excited. I don't want to claim revolutionary, but... I come from a brand where we make a lot of weird niche stuff and it does well for our crowd and people who are buying it. I've lately, I think last year and the year before, I'm seeing bigger brands do some pretty funky, fun stuff. And then they get a little creative with the graphic, which I also really appreciate. But mm -hmm. just fo focusing on the shapes that are coming out, I think that... Um, Unique skis with very niche uses are going to be pretty popular. And I think we're all going to acknowledge that. Um, and then I think the designs that are working right now for a lot of companies, the even just camera profiles that are pretty similar, I think those are going to get pretty dialed in in the coming years. And I'm excited to see um, for X shape, whatever, um, who has the best one. That's what I do. When I come here, I like to try a lot of similar skis from different companies, see what one does the best, and then I like to try the crazy, weird, wonky thing that everyone's excited about and asking about. And snowblading is probably in the future as well. I think, <laughs> I think that should really be included there. I hope so. By the way. And we have Wendy Fisher now on the Moment Skis Blade team. We'd like to claim that. Yeah, that, that right. happened. Was I on that chairlift? I think I was on that chairlift. I was like, we are making things happen at the uh, yeah, Blister yeah, Summit. Yeah, yeah. Um, One sec, just to add credibility. Tyler, how did the uh, Payne McShlonky hot dog downhill go last year? I was doing pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, before the finish line, I went high, Connery London went low, and then we hit each other. <laughs> 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 and then I think I almost killed him and I almost kind of, it wasn't great. Um, and then we all hiked up under the thing and we're like, are you alive? And 
It was great. We all lived. <laughs> close, close calls every day. Bushy. <laughs> and then we went snowblading all day. Huh. Luke Coppa today busted out the, the moment blades. And um, I promise you, you will be seeing some photography in this next buyer's guide. Luke, Luke absolutely crushed today on blades. Very, very proud moment. Uh, so, um, yeah, you'll, you'll, you will be seeing more of, uh, some, some of Luke on blades in that buyer's guide for sure. And it should probably be the cover photo. So, um, anyway, I don't know if we're quite ready yet to put blades on the cover photo, but we might be time. Jed thoughts on this evolutionary or revolutionary. Stage? Yeah. I mean, I think right now we're absolutely in an evolutionary stage and that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of room for us to grow. But I think particularly when it comes to ski shaping and, um, you know, some, some mechanical characteristics, your EI and GJ profile, we're still refining those and, and customer needs are evolving. And so we're changing sort of our design paradigms to meet changing consumer needs. Um, there are a number of things that we're working on that should they work out, I think will be revolutionary, but we really don't, uh, there's not light at the end of the tunnel yet. Um, and I, I think the, the parts of this industry that I think do deserve the sort of revolutionary label are the tools we're building to better understand skis and to manufacture skis better. Um, and those are, are very much behind the scenes, but we are doing things, building skis and like what the Blister Labs team and, and others are doing to understand ski dynamics. That is revolutionary, but it doesn't necessarily mean the product is revolutionary. I don't know if that. Yeah. 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 McKenna? No, I'm. Evolutionary? I think we're in an evolutionary period, but I something cool that could potentially be revolutionary is the use of more sustainable materials. So I think that that's something that's, you know, starting to be dabbled with and if that catches on and becomes something that goes into all of the big brands, it'd be pretty revolutionary. Mm, it's a great, great point. Um, revolutionary doesn't always have to be in terms of shape or performance. Yeah. Yep. Drew is nodding vigorously. Yeah. I think it's uh, definitely a lot of evolutionary. That's kind of like the natural iteration, but um, I think that we're definitely in a revolutionary phase as well as a ski industry as a whole. Um, you know, like at Solomon personally, we're kind of in both stages because I think in a lot of ways, like evolutionary is what we see when we, you know, tweak one ski a little bit from the year before. And we say, oh, wow, there's a new QST 106. This is what's different. I'm going to go out and check that out on the wall at the ski shop. But I think what's revolutionary is when a brand commits to redesigning a line, even though it's selling well, because something in there is going to be revolutionary, even if it's just at that brand. But I think that the most revolutionary piece in the ski industry, <clears throat> like McKenna said, is the sustainability of materials. And I think that is industry-wide. We are working on some cool things at Solomon, but I think that companies like Wonder Alpine are really what is revolutionary in pushing us forward. Like making skis out of algae, that is awesome. 
And that is what's going to change the paradigm. And I think that another thing that's revolutionary too is that we're really trying to cater to a broader swath of consumers and a broader swath of skiers, but with specificity. And again, I would say, especially on the women's side, I think that there's been a lot of revolutionary ski design. There's a lot of companies committing a lot more of their budgets and a lot more of their efforts into that. So I think that that's the revolutionary side right now. Just to jump in again really quickly to build on what you were saying and McKenna was saying, I think from a sustainability mm -hmm. standpoint and just overall, the most revolutionary thing we can do as an industry is figure out how to use skis at the end of their life. Um, and that's, that's a really hard problem to crack. It's, there's been a lot of work going towards that, but if, if you can upcycle or recycle your skis, that, that is a huge revolution that benefits everybody in this room. And just add one thing there, what would be most revolutionary is if the entire ski industry was able to combine efforts to move that forward rather than just looking at it from a competitive and capitalistic point of view. That is happening a bit. Yeah, yeah. it's starting. Any more on that? I wasn't at those meetings, so I, I can't really say, but I do know that representatives, several representatives from every large brand and a lot of small brands are meeting regularly to talk about how we can do this. Um, it's not a simple problem. So the question is, first, not sure whether to categorize this as evolutionary or revolutionary, but a number of companies are now using a new BOA system on a number of boots. And I guess the question is, what took so long? Um, you really should talk to Tom Petrowski, who's in here somewhere, who's our, our boot product line manager. Who will, by the way, we went deep on this at a, okay. another panel, like yeah. real deep. Yeah. Deep. Um, but uh, yeah, so. The short answer is that the BOA that is on ski boots was not available before, and it's stronger and it is designed from the ground up for this application. And until that system was available from BOA, um, the BOA reels that, that were available weren't well suited to, to ski boots. Is that? So the, the follow-up question, no follow-up questions, but we'll give you this one. So then the question is, do we think there is the potential here for this to become a new industry standard? I think I heard that probably was Tom out there in the audience. I, there was a loud yes. Um, with a slightly English accent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> um, and where, where we landed on this the other night on the panel session was, you know, consumers are going to decide. So if the, if the market is into it, this will be around. And I would, uh, in that case, it will be, it will become more and more present. Um, if for some reason customers aren't into it, it will go away. That's a real easy prediction, I think. Um, not really a prediction, just statement of fact. Um, yeah. Question is, what is the most interesting or weirdest prototype ski, we'll put this to all of you, that you have either tried to design or any of you have actually been on that never made it to market? So made it to market does not mean that we just made them for a heli skiing op. So I'm correctly answering the question. <laughs> uh, but we have a ski called the Wildcat. If you're looking at the dimensions, pretty similar to Black Ops 118, Ben Shetler, Armada JJ, all that kind of stuff. And we uh, call it the Fat Cat normally. 
And we're like, well, what's the fattest cat? The Garfield. <laughs> so we made a Garfield. We all rode the Garfield and we're like, we don't ride powder deep enough for the ski to actually do something for us. Um, and then we kind of let that sit for a while. And then we just made a bunch for uh, a heli ski op that I don't know. Did you get a heli ski trip out of the deal? I am turning down a heli ski trip to go to a ski competition, and that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so there is literally a moment ski out in the world, and it says Garfield on it. Um, for cop for uh, trademark, oh. I thought we should do Narfield, and then Ooh. like the N is silent, you know. Coming soon, maybe. Everybody was super impressed with that. You just grabbed the whole room. <laughs> and the graphic and like, is yeah. just lasagna. <laughs> Marfield. Yeah, with a cat. Okay. Weirdest design? And did you drum it up? Or did somebody else, like... I mean, I can't think of any product that didn't end up on the market. It was a prototype for a project that ended up in the market. So it's not like we tried something and we're like, ah, well, I'll, I'll work on this is done. Um, the first versions of the Sakana that I did with Eric were pretty weird. Um, I'm glad they didn't make it to market. Um, <laughs> and then earlier at my time at K2, I didn't do this. This was a guy, Matty O'Loughlin. Um, we were working on a project that at that time we were calling the Nightmare, and that became the Powabunga. Um, but we're looking at ways of sort of reducing swing weight in the ski and we were using three different steel profiles or steel edge thicknesses throughout the ski. So we had three different base thicknesses and <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> it, it was a cool idea. Uh, it didn't work very well. Gotcha. So, yeah. Yep. That seems like that's one of those good accidents of history or like, yeah, we don't, yeah, we, we, don't we really tried do it. Yeah, don't don't do need that. to get yet. <laughs> okay. Anybody else? I haven't tried anything weird. I don't think it, you know, I don't think the weird projects make it to me. I've definitely tried some prototypes that were a hard no right away, but but not you know, because that's usually they were out there in consensus, se. yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, like Jed said, like whatever we work on, like we learn lessons from and we will iterate on it and it leads to something even if it's not the original concept of the ski. So like like my two prior ski sponsors like I was like one of the first three athletes in North America for faction skis. And some of the stuff that we were working on when I was literally in high school is part of their ski line now that people were testing here. Um, you know, when I was at DPS, like I worked on the very first version of a prototype ski seven years ago, maybe eight years ago, that now they have that version you know, the new iteration after years and years of trying to improve upon at this event. Um, at Solomon, I'll just say uh, that uh, they brought the BBR to market. Uh -huh. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> that says enough. And wow, I'm like, qu I'm quite certain that I'm okay to say that. Yeah. So. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I kind of erased that one from my memory. So thanks for... <laughs> So the question is, when you're prototyping a ski, I guess this one, we'll let Jed start with this, and, but when you're prototyping a ski and you're getting athlete feedback, how often or how do you decide 
Um, if someone's like, I don't like this thing, I didn't get along with it. When do you think that might just be you versus, okay, there really might be something that we need to go back to the drawing board on? I mean, I, I think you, you don't know. Um, which is why we're very careful with the, the athletes that we work with, because there's a level of trust, um, in, in providing that feedback. Certainly there are times that we feel that certain feedback will be colored by a, a given athlete's preferences. Um, but again, because we know them so well, we can kind of color that input a little bit. And it's why we don't work with, unless it's a pro model, a single athlete, right? Because we don't know if someone is just saying, I want to drive this project hard this way. And so we need to take a lot of data and get a lot of feedback and sort of combine all of that into meaningful information. And the, the more and better data you have, the more you can distill a signal from noise. So. Exactly. Increase the sample pool. Multiple athletes. You can kind of figure out what works for everybody, you know, what's kind of the same, what one person might be a little bit of an outlier. I would say if the feedback you're getting is consistent on a particular issue and then you have the range of testers from the intermediate to the super pro skier, if you can kind of figure that out and then um, solve that by changing one variable at a time and then if we can then put that ski on everyone else again, and then it's solved, it's like, okay, cool. Pretty confident with that. Um, I would say big picture, given our group and our sample size and all that kind of stuff, we're gonna do the best we can do. So a ski that we all appreciate might make it to market where a lot of people are like, this is kind of funky and weird. But for the people who are buying it, works out well. Um, so. I think all in the testing, all different levels, you try to avoid that as best you can. I think a lot of the reason that companies work with athletes on product design isn't just that we're good at sliding down snow. It's that we have a specific skill set. So I think we build relationships with those companies and we build relationships with designers where they know what we like, they know what we're gonna be fine-tuned to. And so like, you know, Part of being an athlete too is you have your own style. So I know that, you know, product designers know like this is something that we want that athlete to try or this athlete to try. And then the other thing that I'd add too that balances out and going to, you know, the point of increasing the sample size is that like brands are also aren't only testing these skis with their global professional athlete team and then going to market. You know, on the athlete side, we also test it at the ambassador level. And then also like we take it out with, you know, key retailers so that we can get it out and see like, you know what, people like literally like shop guys like are feeling in a ski and, you know, local rippers, like, you know, ski patrollers, like dishwashers, like who just shred every day, like their, their input is also valuable. And that goes to the sample size so that it's not skewed only to these outliers of professional athletes. When you said that, you know, as athletes, part of the deal isn't just doing cool things on snow, but providing that feedback, is that more true now than it was maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago? Or do you think it's always been, because it strikes me, it strikes me as like maybe 
back in the 90s, 80s, 90s, it was a bit more of like, you're really good at this, go jump off something really big. And in prob- and my hunch is increasingly, that's not going to do it. You need to be able to provide another level of value. And that is the feedback that you were just talking about, Drew. Do, do, do you think that's right? Or so... Is that something that's changed and we have more of that? It's more of a requirement now to be able to give that feedback than it used to be. Yes or no? Yes, but I'm 28 years old. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm pretty sure Tyler's 25. Yeah, so uh, not sure exactly what it was like to be a pro skier 30 years ago. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, tore pictures out of magazines and put them on my wall. But I will say that, you know, the athlete sponsorship model has changed a lot because, you know, back then when I grew up watching Blizzard of Oz or, you know, old Greg Stump films, the way that sponsorships worked was that a ski brand would sponsor the film and then the film would say, okay, you're skiing on K2 skis, you're skiing on Solomon skis you know, and these athletes were just like, okay, sweet. We got free product and everybody's on the same ski. They didn't work on gear design at all. The athlete sponsorship model now is radically different. So yes, I think that as a whole, the athlete sponsorship model has created a lot of depth and it's different for every athlete where your value is held. Maybe it's in marketing direction. Maybe it's in creative, maybe, you know, it's in filming. Um, but maybe it's in gear design. So, yes. I think you owe me an apology because you gave a really good answer about the history of these things after talking about, you know, kind of snarkily, how, how, how would you know? So I, <laughs> you owe me, you owe me one. The, the reason that Tyler and I are on this panel is because we have respect for the people who came before us. We were talking about this at the bar last night, yeah. talking about our favorite skiers and favorite movies. Like, you got to know the history of skiing. You know, especially if you're trying to be a part of the future. To add on that with him, great model. That might be why it was kind of awkward answering the question. (laughs) But I wasn't around either, but pretty big nerd. And I've watched a lot of old stuff. And I would say that from the fan side of things, I could tell you the, the skier and the brand association. I knew who was connected with what. Nowadays, as a fan... When I watched Drew, he might put out a sick ski segment. Like maybe, I don't know, you're pretty okay. Um, And I'll watch it and that's awesome. But I also really value hearing him talk about product and his experiences and all of that kind of stuff. Like I want to know the individual, I want to know their story and that is very valuable as well. So I I think athletes like him are kind of shining more now and that's more valuable and you can sell the story and the longevity with that and those athletes can continue to be with these companies and they're really old because I don't care if Drew's 45 and he's not hucking double backflips anymore, but if he's still skiing to the potential that he wants to ride at to whatever age, I'm going to be a fan. I'm going to respect him. I'm going to appreciate what he says about his companies and the gear that he's on. And to that effect, that's why it's important for brands to involve athletes in gear design because athletes are developing a relationship with their fans. They're developing a relationship with the ski community. And so that's where there's added depth. And, you know, that's why it's a part of the athlete sponsorship model to now work on gear design because people will take notice. So the question is, how do your respective companies deal with this uh, question of 
making slight tweaks or iterating on a ski or product that might be a bit of a fan favorite or it's doing really well in the market. And so you kind of want to keep it around. And then sometimes you just say it's time to be done and you move on to something else altogether different. And then a related question is, do you think this is a more complicated or less complicated issue depending on the size of the company? If it's a big company or a smaller company, Jed. Uh, I, <laughs> yeah. Someone else go. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think maybe to take a step back, if we're at a point where there's a production ski where we're like, oh, we need to make changes. We as the development department have done a pretty poor job of developing that product. Um, there are always cases where we will replace or update a beloved model. And when we, we do that, we genuinely believe that that is because the customer has evolved, that the, this, the ski performance of the ski hasn't changed, but that the customer and the consumer that is looking for this has evolved. And that doesn't mean everybody's looking for something slightly different, but that the the customer at the, meet, the top of the bell curve has moved a little bit. And so we need to update our designs to do that. Um, are we right 100% of the time? No. I think we're right often. Um, and and that's, I guess, how we look at replacing a ski that's, that's beloved. As far as making small tweaks, we're always talking internally as a design team and talking with our athletes about like, hey, it might be cool to try this or let's take this ski and put a new core in it or change the flex profile slowly or add more rocker. And that's really more to inform future design decisions than to make any changes to stuff that's in, in a market. Um, it's easy for me to say this. I certainly think it's easier for a small company to pivot than a large company, but that's because I know it's really tough to pivot and I work for a large company. So. Tyler? From our end of things, I would say, kind of relating to that, it is much easier for us to pivot on the production side. I think that we still deal with the same customers who are married to something and they don't want the change. And I think the way to bring in a new product, if you're either updating it or getting rid of one or replacing it, it has to be so good that everyone who was a huge fan of the previous one just acknowledges that the new thing is better and it's going to be better for them and their experiences they're going to have a good time. Um, and then kind of being on the smaller side of things compared to K2, we, whenever we get rid of a ski, we get a lot of people who want us to bring it back. That's most of our customer service. Um, <laughs> so what we do is we're like, okay, we're going to have all of these models in the line throughout the year. We're going to keep producing them in our factory but for all of you ski nerds who like whatever thing from the past, we'll usually bring that back and put it in our reserve series. We're only going to make a couple hundred of them and it's, they're going to be done for the year. We're not going to remake any more and they might not come back next year, but we'll typically do an old cult following graphic for some crazy ski. And at our level, we are able to do that. I think that like pretty much sums most of it up, um, you know, from the evolution and like iteration aspect. Uh, I think a lot of that is also just because we have fantastic product designers and engineers working 365 days a year. Well, no, that wouldn't be 
fair labor practice, but you, you get my point. They work full time. And those people don't just create a ski and then go sit on the couch and play video games until we need a new ski three years later. They're constantly working and especially on materials and construction. Like Jed said, like, let's try a new core in there. So, you know, at the factory and at the design center, like at Solomon, we can design and build every single product in our line at the Annecy Design Center in our office in France. So they are constantly trying to improve and tweak little things. And a lot of that doesn't make it to market, but the benefit of that is there are very inten intelligent people working on these little things that were like, wow, actually, if we put that into what is a cult classic ski, it's going to improve it. And we test it and we see, yeah, it did improve it enough that we're going to add that to the market. And then, you know, for coming up with a new, totally new ski or a totally new line of skis, it's to what I said earlier, that we create these focus groups and it's a multi-year process before we bring something to market. And it's also important to realize too that this isn't just athletes, this isn't just product designers, this is, you know, an entire brand in the marketing department figuring out like what, you know, what niche in the market do we need to serve? And like, so all of those factors are at play, especially when designing new products in a new line. So this one for you specifically, um, there was a K2 ski called the Hellbent. You may have heard of it, might remember it. Definitely had a cult following. What are the odds of a Hellbent being brought back? And will Schmies be doing the graphic again? Um, I need to be careful about how I answer this question. <laughs> um, You're going to get stuff thrown at you. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we have talked about bringing the Hellbent back internally quite a bit. Um, last year was the Hellbent's 15th anniversary. Um, and there was, was a push internally to do sort of what, what Tyler was talking about, um, like to make a small collection of that ski. Um, I don't know if it's something we're going to be able to do. I do know it is something that we are going to continue to push for. Um, as I don't make decisions on who does art, we have a very talented guy doing art right now, Brad Walters. The last time Brad and I talked about a Hellbent-esque project, he did mention Schmies perhaps coming in to at least do part of the graphic. Mm -hmm. That in no way is a promise <laughs> that it's happening. Um, and I'll have to text Ryan after this and be like, dude, you Sorry. are about to get blown up. So um, Ryan's actually done graphics for us since the Hellbent, um, like the last version of the pontoon Ryan did for us. So, yeah. Well, listen, uh, maybe we'll leave it on that note. Uh, Hellbent, definitely coming back. You heard it here first at the Blister, <laughs> Blister Summit 2023. So perfect. Um, Thank can, you all. Can um, we end it on like what one cult classic product we would bring back if we could? Oh, that's uh, yeah, pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah let's yep, do that. Yep, okay. Oh my gosh. All right, you I go first, Drew. Oh man. All right. I didn't realize question. I was going to be first. Obviously at Solomon, we've got the Snowblade. We've got the 1080, but my favorite ski is the Force 9. <laughs> skinny straight skis i've got a pair that are 200 centimeters and i've got a pair i've got a picture of my dad holding the same pair of skis from early 90s with a huge bushy mustache so yeah i want to bring back the force nine tyler would have said the wildcat except we we already got that done for you so you're welcome no i would uh i talked to joe last night i'd like to bring back the solomon ghost um boot 
That's my answer. That's a funny, the Solomon Ghost boot has a cult thing going at moment in particular. Yeah, and then also Candide hasn't stopped wearing them. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, what else is there to say? Just saying. McKenna, cult. I would like a K2 monoski. Oof. I made a split monoski. Um, <laughs> I think if it's a K2 product, it probably would be the K24, mostly because I think that, that ski really changed a lot of the ways that K2 thinks about ski design and ski shape. And I've never skied on it, and I'd be very curious to. Say more about it. Um, so it was basically the K24 was the first shaped, like, parabolic side cut ski that K2 made. And sort of the, who knows how true this story is, but the, the story is that the product line was all developed, good to go. A new prototype was tie, tried in, like, June at Mount Hood with side cut. And the product director said, we are redesigning everything. Um, and, and basically the performance of that ski was so revolutionary that, that K2 jumped full on the, the side cut train. I don't know if that's true or not, but who knows? I think if you asked me taking K2 out of it, it probably would be the Solomon pocket rocket that that ski was like the first fat ski I ever had. And I lusted after it for so long. Um, and, and I don't know how it would stack up against today's skis. I just kind of want a pocket rocket. So Same. Yeah. Um, Pretty good. Pretty good. We're going to end on that. Um, thanks for pulling back the curtain. Sorry? Man. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. One. I mean, I, I just... One? I mean, I, I got... Three. <laughs> I'll recap. So, Jonathan, the question is: Yeah, <laughs> if you were to bring back, we'll go with one. I mean, honestly, I I am in a bit of a unique position because I kind of feel like I actually lived this, right? If people know it's literally downstairs. Before I started Blister, the 190 centimeter Moment Bibby Pro was my favorite ski. Um, it's 118 millimeters wide, so I wasn't skiing it every single day, but that was my favorite ski. And then someone not here right now named Luke Jacobson messed it up, in my humble opinion. And um, I remember he came to me at a trade show, walked up to me and said, don't be mad at me. That was it. Like I had no, no context. He just was like, you are not allowed to be mad at me. And it started there and I, you know, got like started turning even whiter than I am. But, and he's like, we changed the bibby. And I'm like, that's the worst news I've literally heard. Like, um, and so, you know, there, they, there was an iteration of that ski. It was certainly good at other things, but it was not this freaking amazing product. And so, I said to Luke on the spot, like, cool, you go make whatever this new thing is you want to make, but can we just keep making the old one and we could like call it the Blister Pro? And he was like, yeah. And so we got the thing, like, like we didn't have to go through 10 years of missing a ski. Like we got the thing brought back and now, and, and yesterday I got to ski here on that ski 
and I love it still. And so I, I'm very happy to report. I don't, I don't have this sad world where I like pine over this old ski I used to love, like it's back. So that's my roundabout answer, I guess, to that question. So anyway, hey, thank you all for the very good questions. Thank you all for pulling back the curtain. And uh, that's a wrap. Well, that's it for this edition of Gear 30. And again, just a reminder, you can watch all the videos of our panel sessions from our previous Blister Summit over on our Blister YouTube channel. The handle is at Blister Review. And while you're there, you can also check out all of the brand lineup videos that we shot at the summit that will give you insight on all of the new products and why some companies left certain products unchanged over on our YouTube channel. And there is just a treasure trove of information over on that channel. All right, everybody, that's it for now. And we will see you this coming Monday over on our Blister podcast where we have a very interesting conversation for you coming from Sun Valley, which is where I currently am. So check that out over on our Blister podcast. Have a great weekend. and We will talk to you again real soon.